My main thought would be outside our authority. But if the vessel has been involved in possible criminal activity in the past, CSBA could use their authority to deny access. In 2021, I made a freedom of information request with the federal government. I wanted to know if Canada Border Service's decision to delay the Sea Shepherd ship Martin Sheen's entry at Victoria was influenced in any way by fisheries and oceans. I got back 1,500 pages of documents, reports, emails, meeting notes. It turns out several government agencies were interested in the Martin Sheen long before it arrived in Canada for its third summer season supporting the salmon researchers, including a lobbyist. And they were all looking for a reason to deny entry. Maple Leaf Strategies was working on behalf of the Canadian Aquaculture Industry Alliance. Its members include fish farms. The company has been described as one of the most influential lobbyists in the country. This is an excerpt from an email it sent to government. For the past few weeks, we have been exploring between Fisheries and Oceans Canada, Transport Canada, and Public Safety, which government department has oversight and approval of foreign vessels entering Canadian waters for the purpose of research activities. Maple Leaf Strategies was writing to the Deputy Minister of Transport Canada. It had a copy of Alexander Morton's DFO research license and raised questions about it in the email. The Martin Sheen vessel is not listed as one of the two vessels she intends to use this year. Yet we know it's on its way to BC and on social media, the Sea Shepherd Society has stated they are sailing to Canadian waters to aid in research efforts. Of paramount concern is both the safety of the farms and the fish that are being grown, as well as the farm workers who are ultimately harassed by the protests that frequently result and uh, farm occupations that can ensue. Transport Canada responded that Sea Shepherd did not need a reason to enter Canadian waters, and under maritime law, it would be hard to deny entry. Transport Canada was referring to the section of the law that said a ship must be allowed innocent passage through a country's waters, provided it does no harm to the country or breaks any laws. Since Sea Shepherd's Martin Sheen had not broken any laws, it would be hard to deny entry. Maple Leaf Strategies then contacted the Deputy Minister of Public Safety and Emergency Preparedness. It provided the background of its work with other agencies and then asked in the email, Given the track record of the Sea Shepherd Society and the use of their vessel to facilitate protests and not research, and the fact that they are not listed as part of the DFO-issued research license, the sector has been seeking for several weeks to inquire whether third parties can come forward and be included in a formal process to provide information or express concern before vessels are permitted to enter Canadian waters. Maple Leaf Strategies is essentially asking if the fish farm industry could make a case to keep the Martin Sheen out of Canada. The email went on to ask, Is there any oversight of these vessels if, in fact, they are in breach of license conditions? Can a vessel be revoked or not permitted to enter Canadian waters absent being included in a research application? Apologies for this outreach, but we have had troubles trying to get clear answers on this process. Happy to discuss further or provide any background information. As I worked through the release documents, it became clear that Maple Leaf Strategies' email 
generated a lot of discussion in fisheries and oceans and other agencies about how to respond. In the days following, emails between DFO employees flew back and forth. I assume that we don't allow a process to let third parties come forward and express concerns, but there is oversight and actions can be taken to address breaches to license conditions. Fisheries and Oceans has an investigative arm. It's called the National Fisheries Intelligence Service, and it was providing the intelligence reports on the Martin Sheen. In a report dated May 1, 2018, the concern was the ship would generate media attention supporting protest against salmon aquaculture. The report mentions the Martin Sheen has been monitored since 2016 when it first came to B.C., The reported use of drones, divers, and proximity to aquaculture sites creates risks to persons and operations and impacts both the safety of employees and orderly conduct of the fisheries. A report two days later had the subject line, Travel of the RV Martin Sheen to Canada and its involvement with researcher, and the researcher's name is blacked out. It's obviously Alexander Morton. Of concern to fish farm operators was the way in which the crew interacted with marine harvest staff, engaging them in conversation in an attempt to obtain a mort. Keep in mind, this is the third year the Martin Sheen would travel around B.C. fish farms. No laws have been broken. There's been no violence. But Fisheries and Oceans Investigative Arm is watching them and creating dossiers on the ship's crew, researchers from the University of Toronto, and Alex Morton. Get them to clarify what they are seeking to be included in the target profiles, what kind of information would assist their purpose, and also requesting background checks on individuals and anything else that will assist in our investigation. Welcome to the Salmon People podcast. I'm Sandra Bartlett. This podcast is a co-production with Canada's National Observer. We're crowdfunding to cover the cost of this podcast, and if you'd like to support us, you can find a link in the show notes telling you how. Today's episode, Intimidation. CTV News was the first to report the Martin Sheen had not been allowed entry at Victoria Harbour, that the captain was ordered to remain on the ship, and a hearing would be held on Monday morning. There was a renewed flurry of emails among fisheries and ocean staff as to how to respond to the request for comment from CTV. CTV News said border agents told them it was DFO that wanted entry denied, and the ship was stopped because, quote, there was no need for research regarding salmon farms because DFO already does research. In the end, DFO responded with a brief comment to CTV, that fisheries and oceans does not influence the decisions of the Canadian Border Services Agency. But the brainstorming in those emails about the Martin Sheen's movements came out clearly in the questioning at the Monday morning hearing. I showed up there on the Monday at 11 o'clock in Customs House, uh, Blanchard Street in Victoria, for uh, an examination into the, into the issue. Lockie McLean was born and raised in B.C.'s Gulf Islands, At the time, he'd been with Sea Shepherd on and off for almost two decades. He had his captain's papers, and he was in charge of the Operation Virus Hunter campaign. He was the one ultimately in charge of the Martin Sheen when it was in B.C. So he appeared with the captain at the Monday morning hearing, 
which would decide if the ship could enter Canada. And this lasted about two hours. You know, what they wanted from me was to basically relay uh, the nature of the vessel's voyage, what the campaign was all about, who was going to be on board, this kind of stuff. Lockie says it was an unprecedented infringement of privacy, forcing the ship's captain to provide the names of the guests. And I think I replied at the time, like, look, if, if you've got a, an American yacht coming up here with, let's say, you know, some high rollers and they want to spend a couple of weeks, you know, cruising around the BC coast, you know, 200 foot private luxury yacht, you could have any number of people joining and leaving the ship at any given time. Guests, charter guests, VIP. None of this type of reporting would be required. There were suggestions that the Martin Sheen should be categorized as a foreign research ship, conducting scientific research in Canada, which would have required a lot of paperwork. My response to that was, well, any research being done is being done by either the University of Toronto, independent biologist Alexandra Morton, or, you know, First Nations uh, guests that are on board simply documenting the voyage. So the, the, the actual collecting and gathering of information is very much local. It sounded like what they really wanted was for us not to conduct this independent science into the effects of, of salmon farms on migratory salmon. I mean, that was basically what they were getting at. But DFO was doing this work. You know, you got, who are you guys to come in here and, and, and do this? So um, anyway, they did impose the obligations Lockie believes the Department of Fisheries and Oceans wanted to stop the Martin Sheen from helping First Nations, Alexander Morton and her colleagues, from getting close to the fish farms. After the clearance was granted, one officer stated to me that it was best to avoid a situation that could become a headache for Ottawa. So I didn't know what that meant, but that was the advice I was given <laughs> on, on leaving the building. So for its 2018 tour, the Martin Sheen had to travel outside Canadian waters every 30 days and then re-enter. They had extra paperwork to do, and they were given the unusual stipulation that they must send an email to customs every time the ship moved. Alex Morton didn't even want to get on the Martin Sheen that year. For the first time in her life, she was hit with depression. She told the crew she wasn't coming. I, I told them, I said, look, I, I'm, I'm, I can't do it. I'm too exhausted. I'm too grumpy. I just can't do it. And the woman who was the campaign manager that year, she worked on me. And finally, I was like, OK, 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 I'm, I'm going to try it. I'm going to uh, I'll commit to two weeks. But this would be a summer of one strange thing after another. So the first thing that happened to me was just in the week and a half before I got on the boat, uh, my Gmail account got taken over by somebody. I couldn't get into it anymore. She called Google Gmail customer service and was told her password had been changed. And it was quite a job to get it back. And they said, Gmail said it was somebody in Toronto. She had to provide all sorts of evidence that she was the real Alexandra Morton before she got her email account back. Then something else strange happened. A couple days later, I got a phone call from a fisherman. And he said, he said, look, I, I don't know if this has anything to do with you, but my son went for a job interview with a company that is calling itself Black Cube. And he said, they have surveillance equipment. 
they're hiring medics and divers and videographers. And he said, you should, you should take a look at the website Black Cube. And so I did. Alex Googled Black Cube. She learned that Black Cube is an Israeli intelligent company with offices in Tel Aviv, London, and Madrid. They described themselves as a select group of veterans from Israeli elite intelligence units that specializes in tailored solutions to complex business and litigation challenges. We help our clients adopt a proactive approach to litigation and conflict resolution by providing intelligence that can later be used as evidence in court. I actually thought it was a hoax. It was so sinister. Many people on the coast had seen boats with blacked-out windows and long camera lenses sticking out of small window openings. And the fisherman's warning was prescient. The boat started following the Martin Sheen and Alex in her own boat every day. I called out to the guys in the boat, are you with Black Cube? And they said, then, you know, it was a non sequitur. Um, some of them were clearly local guys. Except for one guy. There was another one, another fellow on the boat, though, that was very European-looking, well-styled, and he had a little suitcase with wheels on it, which, you know, people in Campbell River that are getting on a boat are probably not going to have a little suitcase with wheels on it. Uh, It just looked out of place. Alex still couldn't believe these guys were with the Israeli company Black Cube. She looked up the BC business license and found a local man registered the name Black Cube Strategies, It had received its business license on June 18th. On July 9th, it was advertising for risk management personnel in five local towns. And two days later, the boats were following her. So we began taking pictures back, but they followed us. You know, everywhere we went, they were behind us. If we were sitting in harbors at anchor, they drifted in the harbor with us. Lockie McLean had just finished arguing with Canada Border Control for the Martin Sheen to be allowed into Canada. And now this. Lockie saw the man with the roller bag. So these guys were clearly, you know, not from Vancouver Island or BC or any. They'd flown in from somewhere to take on this contract. Uh, and that was pretty clear to me. And, you know, they're paying a sizable amount to charter a boat daily for the whole summer. Definitely, it felt like a, a professional operation of some kind. And strange things happened when the boats were around. One day when the Martin Sheen got near a marine harvest fish farm, open Wi-Fi networks showed up on their laptops. This means they weren't password protected and anyone could log on. One was called Martin Sheen. But it wasn't the ship's network, it was a duplicate. And sometimes computers and phones will automatically connect to open networks. The crew began to have computer issues. And one day there was a balloon-looking thing up in the air a short distance from the Martin Sheen. Okay, we've got this balloon, you know, being deployed, and there's this very strange kind of network that's popped up, um, a new Wi-Fi network that wasn't there previously. And uh, it wouldn't be hard for them to deploy a balloon with some, you know, Wi-Fi equipment on it that could basically capture the communications Another evening, some of the crew on the ship watched a movie called Master and Commander. The next day, they noticed the boats following them had changed their VHF radio call signs, or name, to Master and Commander. And when that happened, it became clear that they were listening to us. 
because the, the the coincidence that they would use that those words master and commander the day after that film had played in the wheelhouse of the Martin Sheen was just too great. I didn't feel for the safety of my crew on board, uh, but I did feel like, you know, there was some serious clout and money being put behind gathering intelligence on our, our movements. The next day, Alex filed a report with the RCMP. I did. I said, look, I think I need to make a report here about what is going on. <laughs> but at the end of it, the young officers like, I don't know what to do about this. My suggestion is you don't go anywhere alone. But of course she did. She had to. Because when she took days off from the ship, she traveled in her own boat. And on one circumstance, I was out of my boat uh, fishing and they were following me. And I just, okay, I'd had it. So I turned around and I went right up to them. I said, look, what are you guys doing? Hello? Who are you guys? Who are you? Why are you following me? What's the plan? And they took off and fled across Blackfish Sound. They were way faster than me, but I followed them. And they stopped again, and I circled them, and they had all their doors shut, all their windows shut. They were black. You couldn't see into it, and they wouldn't talk to me. She headed home and posted a video of the confrontation on Facebook. And then she went to the Black Cube website, the Israeli Black Cube. And I noticed that they had an office in Toronto, which, FYI, is where Gmail said somebody had taken over my email account. Anyway, I wrote them an email, and I said, look... This behavior has to stop. This is unacceptable. What are you guys doing? If if you want to talk to me, just call me. I got an answer immediately from a lawyer, and he said, it's not us. The name Black Cube is a registered trademark, like McDonald's or Amazon or Google. And if someone started a business using one of those names, they would likely find themselves in court being sued. I said, okay, wait a minute. A company formed in Campbell River days before this harassment started, and they are called Black Cube Strategies. And the lawyer said, well, they took over our name and we will deal with that. Well, they didn't deal with that. The company persisted for another year and a bit. According to the City of Campbell River company registration, Black Cube Strategies and Consulting remained active until September of 2020. Alex's Facebook post got some media attention, and the spokesperson for Marine Harvest admitted to a newspaper the company had hired Black Cube Strategies because it was concerned for the safety of its employees on the fish farms and the verbal abuse being hurled at them. We decided to hire a local company that would have an objective presence in the area. They're trained in de-escalation, and uh, they would provide security for our staff. That is what we hired them to do. These conspiracy theories or rumors uh, that this security company was doing or was anything more than that is quite simply put nonsense. Ian Roberts has been with Marine Harvest for more than 25 years, mainly in communications and as a spokesperson. I asked him about the name. Well, we certainly have no bearing on their choice of name, uh, and I think You know, there can be company names in different countries in the world that are the same purely by coincidence. I happen to know the owner of this security company. Uh, 
him and I used to attend uh, local hockey games in Campbell River together. So I know that this security company was based in Campbell River and had absolutely no affiliation with other companies around the world that happened to be named the same. Alex's friend Bill McKay had a run-in with one of the boats at the dock in Port McNeil. He was about to take a boatload of tourists out whale watching when he noticed the boat with the blacked-out windows. One of the boats pulled right in front of our passenger vessel, and and the fellow stepped out of it. And I went over to him and I said, Sir, um, I'm Captain Bill McKay, and who are you? And he wouldn't say his name. I said, that's fine. I said, but can you explain the blacked-out windows? Bill says he likes to be able to see the skipper in the boat at the controls. That way he knows the skipper sees him too and won't run into his boat. And it was, yeah, it was, it was, it was threatening. I didn't appreciate that. My daughter was coming down the dock. She could see her dad um, in a very, somewhat of a discussion, but this very tall guy and, you know, quite bulky uh, was standing probably within a few inches of my face and and with his finger pointing at my chest and I thought you know that really is aggressive because that's not our nature we don't do that stuff passengers for his whale watching tour were filing by getting on his boat and so my daughter stepped in between the two of us and said what's going dad what's going on I said well here's these blacked out windows um, and this guy is really uh, really he seems to be quite upset that I've made the, you know, that I've requested. What, what is he up to? And he wouldn't reply. Uh, but lots of colorful metaphors. And, and to me, you know, she just looked at me and said, Dad, he's a bully. Leave it alone. After that, sometimes the boat would follow Bill's whale watching tours, taking pictures. One day he was taking out a group of photographers. They had high end cameras with long lenses. When Bill saw the blacked-out boat start to follow, he asked his passengers to take pictures of the boat and the crew. And with that, wow, the, these people that were holding the cameras on the small blacked-out vessel disappeared quickly and closed the door. Bill also filed a report with the RCMP, but nothing ever came of it. Ian Roberts of Maui told me he's never heard of this incident. This is the first I've heard anything like this, and I honestly, I can't respond to hearsay. I can't respond to this speculation. I, I've never heard of it before, and I would suggest that if uh, this particular incident happened, that this person would have reported it to police, and it would be a police matter. Then suddenly, two months after it started, the surveillance stopped, and the boats disappeared. Alex was relieved. It was one less tension in her life. The final court ruling that ended the occupation of the Swanson Island fish farm came out in August. The ruling put a restriction on Alex's access to all marine harvest fish farms. Alex was still travelling to the farms on the Martin Sheen, but once there she would leave the ship and get into a fishing boat to get up close to the pens and collect water samples. The court said this boat could be no bigger than 2.6 metres. That's about eight feet, smaller than your average canoe. Forcing her into such a small boat could put her in danger in rough waters. But she went for it. She got a small inflatable dinghy, rode to the fish farms, rocking in the waves, and posted videos on Facebook. The videos got a lot of attention, and Alex's lawyer was able to get the ruling changed so Alex could use her own boat. 
but she had to be alone in the boat, no other passengers. The fish farms were granted the injunctions. We had only a few days to remove our structures and everything off of the fish farms. After that, we weren't allowed to step foot on the farms again. Ernest Alfred has an incredible flair for brilliant actions. And he said, let's plan a big event on the final day that we're allowed to be here. And so over a hundred people showed up in various boats. It was incredible. So the whale watching boats came, lodge owners came, fishermen, people in their own speed boats. And they circled the farm drumming and, and a lot of chiefs came. After the court injunction forced hereditary chief Ernest Alfred and his niece Carissa Glendale to leave Swanson Island Fish Farm, everyone wondered what they should do next. Carissa still believed she owed it to the next generation to help the wild salmon return. You know, I don't want to just tell stories. I want to actually show them how to do it so that they can show their kids in the future. Bob Chamberlain from the Kwikwasutinuk, Hakwakni's First Nation, was thinking the same thing. This was the time to act. The Office of the Auditor General of Canada had a scathing report about DFO's lack of awareness and monitoring of disease transfer. So the Auditor General cannot be characterized as an activist. Bob was at a meeting of the Union of BC Indian Chiefs, where NDP leader John Horgan promised support for the UN Declaration on Indigenous Rights if the NDP became the government in 2017. Bob took the opportunity to invite him to a meeting in the Big House in Campbell River, an invitation newly elected Premier Horgan took him up on. There were several hundred people at the meeting in the Big House, representing a dozen First Nations. They sat on bleachers in a circle with a roaring fire in the centre, and they talked about salmon. We long spoke about the concerns of wild salmon in our traditional territories. We spoke about the incredible cultural significance of salmon to our people. Premier Horgan talked about creating legislation in B.C. to embrace the U.N. Declaration of Indigenous Rights. He said he wanted First Nations input to do that. I'm here to meet again the Victoria with the delegation of your choosing so that we can talk about the next steps. The UN Declaration on the Rights of Indigenous Peoples, known as UNDRIP, was passed in 2007. It sets out the minimum standards for survival, dignity, and well-being. And most importantly, it recognizes Indigenous peoples' right to self-determination, which includes the right to freely determine their political status and freely pursue their economic, social, and cultural development. In 2007, 144 countries adopted UNDRIP, but not Canada. It didn't endorse it until 2016. It was quite an historic occasion in localized because it's the first time a sitting premier has sat down in our big house um, to a meeting um, with hereditary leaders, uh, some of the people from the occupation, some young people, some matriarchs. Kelly Speck is a member of Namgi's First Nation and lives in Alert Bay. 
Like everyone along the coast, she fished with her parents as a child. Well, I guess being out on the boat by the time when I was six onward, you were often leaving on Sunday and you'd be returning home on Fridays. Um, Saturdays, there would be you know net repairs for the crew. And for somebody like me, you had to do the grocery shopping and get the boat cleaned up and ready to go. And then you'd leave again on Sunday. She remembers it as exciting and fun. You know, the fleet was quite large. So, um, and many of our community members and family members who lived elsewhere were also working on the water. But in the evenings when fishing ended, you quite often had the opportunity to tie up together. So to be all sorts of socializing going on across the fishing boats. But then, as many did, she went off to university and to jobs on the mainland. She was a policy advisor and then an assistant deputy minister in three different departments for the B.C. government. And this is where she learned about consultation, negotiation, and deal-making. In 2013, Kelly returned to Alert Bay to be with her aging parents, and by the end of that year, she was an elected councillor. Suddenly, she was negotiating with the forestry companies and the province on tree harvesting licenses. When Bob Chamberlain got Premier Horgan to agree to a meeting, it was clear that Kelly Speck should be there. The first meeting was in January 2018. And it was a very large meeting because we had the uh, the, the chief and council from the Zaudenok, the Guawinuk, the Kwekwesutinuk, the the Numbis. There were five First we Nations in the beginning, but the two stepped back. First Nation of because they are uh, geographically quite distant and had not been involved in some of the fall meetings, they said, well, we're going to just watch this process. We're not sure we really want to be involved in the negotiations. Um, We left open the door for them to join us. No one could be sure what would come of the meeting with the B.C. Premier, but First Nations were going in with a plan. Bob Chamberlain said they wanted to take science out of the discussion. It had shown that it's got the legs to have an endless, endless, your science, my science, their science, you're all wrong, we're all wrong, nobody's right, and that's where status quo continues. For First Nations, the fight over science was just a way to do nothing to help the wild salmon. Kelly Speck says her people, the Namgis, knew this was an historic meeting, but weren't sure what would happen. Like, are they going to go far enough? Like, you know, for ourselves, I think we limited each nation to bringing three or four people because we, again, didn't want there to be an imbalance and too many people and too many voices at the meeting. So a number of deputy ministers, a number of senior policy analysts from the Premier's office. There was a suggestion that maybe DFO should be involved in the talks. But First Nations said, no, no, not at this meeting. When they arrived, there were DFO people in the room. The B.C. government quickly explained their presence by saying there was still some shared federal-provincial responsibility over the fish farms. Very sort of quiet but fairly quick conversation. Then we said that it was fine that they were in the room. We would have preferred that we had been aware of that beforehand, and then we could have had this conversation. Instead, it kind of introduced an awkward note. The negotiating team, led by Kelly Speck, wanted to move fast on a letter of understanding that would create a clear guide for the negotiations. We were only there for several hours, really. By the time lunchtime happened, it was quite clear that we were going to be in a position to announce that, yes, there would be a negotiation of this letter of understanding. 
Even with a letter of understanding, Kelly's experience in government taught her there needed to be firm commitments on how the bureaucratic team was going to work to negotiate the details of an agreement. You know, they said, well, you know, we'll have a team together. And it's like, well, OK, but, you know, it's, it's got to be a team. There's got to be money. There has to be a clear path. Who is this team reporting to and getting directions from? There was some urgency. This was January, and 10 fish farm tenures or licenses were up for renewal in June. They were in the Broughton Archipelago off northern Vancouver Island. First Nations wanted the power to cancel those tenures. Kelly pushed for deadlines. These people cannot be doing this off the corner of their desk. They have to be extracted and dedicated to getting this done. And maybe I'm being a bit of a bitch, but I've just seen things kind of dribble off. You know, you get your moment of political focus and then something else takes over. Everyone was at the news conference to announce the deal. Premier Horgan and government ministers, First Nations negotiators and industry, Sir Mac and Maui. And so uh, we signed a letter of intention, a letter of understanding with the Numgis, with the Quick Wasutnak Kwa Wamish and the Mama Lila Kuala First Nations uh, to begin discussions and dialogue about how we could address in- Indigenous concerns about salmon aquaculture, but equally important, in fact, probably more important, how could we work together to re-establish wild salmon in the region? Premier Horgan said government-to-government meetings weren't easy, but they did manage to come up with a plan. The plan that we're announcing today will mean the closure of 10 farms in the Broughton over the short term that will create that safe migratory route, that corridor for young salmon that was uh, mandated by the uh, Cohen Commission, a federal document, and sets in place a requirement for the existing farms to put more production in the water only with agreements with the Indigenous communities that are represented here today. There were seven more farms that could stay or go, depending on First Nations approval. We're going to achieve a lot of the dreams that have been spoken of by leaders long before mine. Maui's managing director, Diane Morrison, said there would be minimal job losses from the closures as people would be moved to other farms, with hopes those farms could stay open. And then the long-term transition is that's our opportunity through the uh, relationship building, through the monitoring program, to be able to stay in the Broughton. It's hard to overstate what a big deal this was. It turned over power and authority to First Nations to make decisions about fish farms in their territory. Chief Bob Chamberlain says it was the first time that the UN declaration had been implemented in Canada. And so it was the first time that we were able to have true shared decision-making in every way, shape, and form on an industry's activities in a traditional territory. Once the letter of understanding was announced, Alex Morton's phone went crazy. I, I, I realized something good was happening because I started to get texts from various people saying, which farms do you think should go first? Wow, I've never received a text like that before. She couldn't believe that after all these years fighting government, it would be the First Nations who would decide the future of the salmon farms. The news release called it a groundbreaking government-to-government process to protect and restore the wild salmon and allow an orderly transition plan for open-pan finfish for the Broughton Archipelago. Then the real negotiations began. Bob Chamberlain says at the beginning, it looked like it was going to be the same old, same old. 
We were pushing for free prior and informed consent. That was the goal. But what we found was the government was um, still trying to hold on to uh, the Crown's decision-making authority. Lawyer Sean Jones was at the meetings representing First Nations. He says industry clearly did think it was going to be the same old, same old. They came to those meetings, I think, with the presumption that their rights and interests were greater than the rights and interests of Indigenous people. But they were soon set straight. And I think they came to that meeting thinking that they weren't appearing before the steering committee, but that they were part of the steering committee and equal with the provincial government. And in one of the first meetings that one of these licensees attended, the chief negotiator for the province, quite frankly, asked them to leave, said, you've got expectations wrong here. You need to kind of go away. We're going to have a chat government to government. You, you go sit outside and we'll let you know when you can come back in. Sean says after that, the industry understood that this time it was going to be different. During the negotiation period, industry was invited to meetings to make presentations and answer questions related to First Nations' priority to protect wild fish. It was meant to help them make decisions on whether the fish farms stayed or closed. We had multiple presentations from them and we, we were getting them narrower and narrower and narrowing down. What adjustment could they make in the Broughton with what known impact? Sir Mac and Maui appeared on separate days. Then we said, well, doesn't really answer this concern about migrating salmon. Can you go away and come back with how you would address that? So the companies came back again and again and again until they had answers for all the First Nations questions. What would you do with the staff and, and the production? In some cases, they didn't have an answer on production, but they could say, well, we, we might lose one or two people, but we've got enough operations. There'll be something else that we can absorb them into. The companies still seemed to believe they could negotiate to remain, but it was the first time the companies were forced to share their plans. Well, I don't think they quite knew how initially to take this, because we just said, well, we're going to make recommendations on whether your tenures uh, should continue or if they impact it too much, we may recommend that they not there. So why don't you just tell us what you want to tell us? And so they did, and, you know. It was an interesting experience, because when I first, I, I remember quite clearly the CEO of one of these companies walking into the very first meeting. And the way I read his body language is, this is not how it's supposed to be. Bob says in the past, industry and government would walk into meetings together and sit on one side of the table, First Nations on the other side. And so this time, industry walked into the room where First Nations and the, and the Crown were sitting as equals to receive information for the government-to-government deliberations and planning and recommendation setting and decision-making. Of course, they put their best foot forward with all of their wonderful plans and technology and how BFO didn't think they were having a negative impact on the environment, etc. You know, so they, they put forward this picture of themselves as a responsible green industry. But the PR campaign wouldn't work this time. To challenge them about, well, except what about these studies? At first, the companies stayed with their talking points. And, you know, initially it was, well, 
we're not hurting wild salmon as much as you might think we are. And you know, we're, it's like, no, no, how is this helping wild salmon that you're there? Um, how would you change your operation if your focus was ours? Our focus is on, you know, restoring stocks in out migrating and saving passing stocks from say the Fraser runs that pass through the Broughton on their way out to sea. We left it up to them. So they they come back and they'd make another presentation and would say, well, you know, not really sure that answered our question. And so off they would go and they would come back. The meetings went on for several months. And in September of 2019, First Nations made their decision. It was a rather remarkable process to get to the end where we had our recommendations on closing uh, 10 of 17 farms over a, a a two or three year period and the remaining seven would start reaching their final production in the final two years and at the end of it if there was no new agreement with us their 10 years were over so that was our recommendations um and they stood up with us at the announcement and said that they had been consulted um numerous times provided us all sorts of information and indicated that they could They'll hold on to the hope that the final seven farms, that we might let one or more of them stay at the end of their tenure. After 20 years of fighting the fish farms, Alex Morton was watching all this with awe. But she was concerned that all the fish licenses weren't being cancelled immediately. She learned... That was a deliberate tactic by First Nations. The companies have fish in the hatchery that they're raising for a year before they put it out in the farm. They have this, they have that, they have the next thing. It's a big wheel. And to suddenly stop it, even though the paperwork says you can do that, you actually can't. So the First Nations gave the two companies, Maui and Cermak, a schedule for the closure of some of the farms and a time frame for deciding if the rest would also be closed. And so what the lawyer and the nations had worked out was to deliver uh, a schedule that would just slip under the radar. It wouldn't get, it wouldn't trigger an injunction, um, but would start to provide relief for the fish right away. Alex crossed her fingers, waiting to see if any of this would actually happen. For Ernest Alford, after 280 days occupying a fish farm, it felt like success. I would say this would be the beginning of the end uh, for British Columbian fish farming. They're going to be doing things in a different way, but they're not going to be doing it in our territory. They're not going to be abusing our fish anymore. For the first time in their business, they'll have to shovel their own shit. Next time on the Salmon People podcast, minimal risk. I'm absolutely disgusted in the Department of Fisheries and Ocean and their announcement. There's an absence of talk about sea lice. This doesn't surprise me at all. The Salmon People podcast is researched, written, and produced by me, Sandra Bartlett. It's a co-production with Canada's National Observer. Story editing by My Frozen Headphones production... Sound engineering by Damien Kearns and Ben Ramos Salzberg. Special thanks to Dave Coots and Damien Kearns for being the voices of the FOI documents. 
please consider giving us a five-star rating and leaving a comment that helps more people find us.